This is Speaking Freely from the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm your host, Andy Hoover, Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA, and this is our premiere episode. For episode one, we're going to talk about immigration. We chose immigration for our first episode because this is an issue that we are going to come back to again and again. In the Trump era, it is one of the most urgent issues of the day, and we expect to return to this issue so that our members and supporters understand the damage that is being done to immigrant families by President Trump's policies. To talk about immigration in this episode, I had the chance to interview Partiv Patel, a client of the ACLU of PA, and Sister Janice Vanderneck, an ally of ours from Casa San Jose in Pittsburgh. Partiv Patel is a lawyer and a DACA recipient. He connected with the ACLU of PA when he was initially denied his law license in Pennsylvania because of his immigration status, despite graduating from law school and passing the bar exam. In this interview, Partiv talks about his experiences as an immigrant child, what it's like to be undocumented, and the need for Congress to pass the DREAM Act. This interview was recorded on March 13th. Here's Partiv Patel. Partiv, let's start at the beginning. How did you end up in the United States? Uh, I originally came to the United States um, at the age of five. Um, my parents had come to the United States before I had actually arrived, and then they had sent for me. When I came to the United States, landed at JFK Airport, and has been here ever since. So you've talked in the past, I've heard some of your speeches about how your parents really had to work so hard for you guys and for to support your family. Um, what was life like for you as a young person in those early years? Life in those early years was a little difficult. I remember my parents used to work 14, 15 hours a day overnights. Um, and I was, I had to live with my mom's aunt who used to work in a hotel room. Uh, who used to work in a hotel uh, as a housekeeper, and her hotel room where she stayed in was very small, nothing more than 10 by 10, and I used to sleep on the floors. Um, and I used to spend my nights pretty much alone while my mom's aunt was out doing housekeeping duties. Um, and in the morning, my parents would pick me up, I would go to school, so I never really got that interaction because every time I saw my parents, it was always in transition from one place to another. So it was a little rough in the sense that I never had you know, my parents there necessarily, but I knew they were working hard for a better life for me, so I would never hold it against them. Yeah, when you first described that to me, I, I, it sounded so um, isolating. What, what about with your peers? What was social interaction like? Were you able to get out and, you know, were you always in that hotel room all the time or how'd, how'd, that, how'd that work? Yeah, so social interaction was pretty much limited to when I was in school. Uh-huh. It would only, you know, be from, you know, just hanging out with classmates during recess, but I never got to do after-school activities. I never got to kind of just be a kid and wander the streets, if you will, um, just playing on the streets because I was forced to live in this very regimented uh, schedule. So it was a little different. Obviously, when I got a little bit older, I had more social interaction, and I think that's why I might crave a little bit of social, social interaction now, uh, just because um, they didn't really get to experience that when I was younger because I had to grow up a lot faster than most kids did. For sure. Um, and speaking of growing up faster, at what point did you realize you what the situation was with your immigration status? So early on, I really didn't have a clue on what was going on. 
Um, but when you start getting older and you actually started needing documents for certain things, that's when the questions started arising. Like, hey, you know, I need to get a driver's license. Where, where, where's my social security card? Or where's, you know, my birth certificate or passport or whatever have you. And I think, and my parents started pushing that question away. And like many other dreamers, my story is the same where we initially didn't know, but when you got to the age where you had to ask for certain documents or ask for, hey, I need to apply for FAFSA. Oh, wait, you're not eligible for FAFSA. Um, that's when you kind of put the pieces together and find out what your true immigration status is. So let's jump ahead to your post-secondary education. You got an undergraduate degree, and then in 2012, President Obama created DACA, and that opened all kinds of doors. Um, can you talk a little bit about what DACA meant for a young person like you, a dreamer? So I remember vividly the day I found out DACA was created. I remember I was at my temple and I got home that day and my parents were like, hey, did President Obama do something for children that were brought to the United States? And and I was like, wait, what? No, because I used to kind of keep in the loop of what was happening. Uh, but for some reason, this much must have just slipped under the radar. And I was like, I didn't hear about anything. So I Googled it immediately and I was like, hey, what's going on? And I, I saw the list of requirements and I was like, great, I meet this. And I remember... The day I was actually approved as well, I used to check my status of my case like daily. Um, and when I got a feeling that it might be happening soon, I used to check it like hourly. And I remember sitting at my dining room table just checking, checking, all of a sudden it pops up that I've been approved and just wait for my letter and you know work permit in the mail. And I just felt a sense of relief just knowing that you know I can kind of keep pursuing what I wanted to do in life and not you know be scared that I might be sent back to a country I've never been or, you know, be foreclosed from actually getting a job as an attorney, going to law school and doing things like that. So you went to law school. You went to Drexel's Klein School of Law, finished, uh, finished your, you got your JD there, and then passed the bar exam in 2016. And then another hurdle comes along. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I passed, so I took both Pennsylvania and New Jersey bar exams July 2016 with every other graduate that graduated in 2016. And in October, um, well, let me step back a little bit. The way bar exam results are posted or how you find out is your name's just on a list. The board puts up your name on a list. And if you your name's on a list, great, you pass, congratulations. If you didn't, try again next time. Um, I actually was special. I actually got a phone call that morning when results were supposed to be posted. And the, the Pennsylvania bar initially, because they were first to release results, uh, she called me and said, hey, congratulations, you passed the bar, but bad news is we have to deny admission because of your DACA status. Obviously, that was kind of a punch in the gut because obviously I had my law degree, I had passed the bar, um, but not being able to practice kind of put a damper on what I wanted to do in life. And along with that, I think, uh, yeah, it just put a damper on what I wanted to do in life. And you were able to overcome that. Uh, you got a lot of support. Um, uh, and can you, I'd like to hear a little more detail about like what it took to make sure that you were able to ultimately get your law license. Um, well, the ACLU stepped into high gear. Um, I couldn't have done it without the ACLU. Before I even applied to the bar, I had a feeling that this might be an issue. So in my third semester, I'd actually reached out to the ACLU um, and said, hey, this might be an issue. They took me on as their client. And we worked through the application process, and we just kind of waited for the bar to make their move. Uh, once they had made their moves, the ACLU kicked into gear. Um, in Pennsylvania, they had created a team of contributing attorneys as well as the ACLU. Um, and the way the process works is you get the initial denial from the board. So I had my initial denial denying me from admission in Pennsylvania. Thereafter, you can have a hearing with a board member 
um, where you lay out your case essentially on why you should be admitted. And at the hearing, everything is under oath. You're being recorded. Your attorneys are present. The board member is present. They can ask you whatever questions they want to ask you. And we got the hearing scheduled for February. So if you think about timeline, it's been a substantial amount of time between passing in October, finally getting a board hearing in February. When we got to the board meeting, it was pretty apparent that the the issue wasn't with my character. To kind of give it a perspective, the way bar admission works is you have the actual physical exam, and then you have something called a character and fitness committee, which has to say, you know, you have the character and fitness required to be an attorney. The board readily admitted that the issue wasn't my character. If I was any other person, I mean, any other individual, if I had, if I was the same person but just didn't have DACA and was just a regular American, I would be admitted without blinking an eye. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that I had DACA, there was a legal question that they had to answer. So the ACLU submitted their briefs, we made our arguments, and then it was just a waiting period. Um, and that was more of the the mind-boggling thing where the the board's process was kind of secretive in the sense that they couldn't tell you when the next board meeting was or when if they would pick up your topic or discuss your topic or if they voted on your topic. So you're just in this waiting game. And then, so we waited from February till June. Finally in June, I got a letter uh, saying, hey, the board talked about you but couldn't come up with a decision, so we'll let, we'll let you know when we do. We can't give you a timeline. Um, so then it was just a lot more waiting after that. And then finally in November... Uh, I actually got a phone call saying, hey, you've been admitted. The board voted you in. Just wait for the letter to come in mail. And that was the first sense of relief. Um, this was just in Pennsylvania. I still had New Jersey to deal with right. after that. <laughs> yeah, and you got a lot of support, too. You got uh, some, several law schools that submitted letters on your behalf, some bar associations, local bar associations submitted letters. Um, it seemed like it was a real uh, effort to make sure that that this happened for you, and you're the first undocumented uh, lawyer in Pennsylvania, correct? Yeah, in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and to speak of that support, it was it was tremendous. Um, I think that's what kind of got me through the process, because it does take an emotional toll on you, no matter how strong of a person you are. It does take an emotional toll because you work so hard for something, to have it foreclosed to you just takes an emotional toll on you and the waiting game but just seeing the outpour of support i had from you know people i didn't even know like yale ethics bureau jumped in and said hey we're submitting briefs on your behalf i had um immigrants rights groups that have dealt with this issue in other states saying hey if you need us to submit anything we're ready we had my law school dean come out and say hey no uh is a great candidate i'd be honored if he was in the bar we'd had multiple philadelphia schools come out and say the same thing the Philadelphia uh, solicitor's office came out and said the same thing. So a bunch of these organizations were coming out and even just like individual people, I think that's what made the difference in support. I would get random messages on Facebook saying, hey, I know what you're going through. You don't know that I have your support and if you need anything, I'm there for you. So yeah, it wasn't some massive organization supporting me, but just individual Americans every day realizing what I was going through and empathizing with me and then lending that support that I needed to get through the process. So let's let's pull the the lens out a little bit and talk about the situation with the Dream Act and DACA. You know, there are 1.8 million Dreamers estimated um, who have similar stories um, that they're trying to make their way and they're in their young adult years and they're trying to figure out how to um, what you know what their situation is going to be, what their future looks like. I know that you have networked with um, other Dreamers. What are you hearing from folks who are in a situation like yours? So there's, there's, there's A, a lot of anxiety, and B, a lot of confusion. So the anxiety deals with the fact that dreamers just don't know 
what next moves they should make. The next moves that normal people would make, you know, without having to put as much thought into it, dreamers have to step back and really analyze the situation. Uh, for example, will they be able to work next year, next month, next day? Uh, will they have the ability? Is it a smart idea to buy a car? Is it a smart idea to... Um, you know, get a mortgage. For example, I just got married. My wife's talking about kids, and I'm like, is that really a smart idea for me? Um, you have all these things you want to do in life, but you can't because you're foreclosed by it. Mm-hmm. Along with that, as a as a DACA recipient, you're not eligible for any financial aid when you're going to school. So there might be dreamers out there that have the capability that could, you know, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an engineer, whatever they want to do, pursue their dreams but can't because they're not eligible for financial aid. They have to, uh, you know, they can't pursue their dreams because the DREAM Act hasn't been passed. There hasn't been some kind of legislation that allows DREAMers uh, what they deserve, honestly, and that's, you know, permanent residency in the United States. And to that, you've told a story about a young woman who approached you at the New Jersey swearing-in. Can you tell that? Yeah, that had to be the best um, kind of feeling for me and made everything worth it. Um, so the New Jersey, when I got sworn into New Jersey, the governor and the attorney general decided to come swear me in, which was the coolest thing ever because no one ever gets a privilege like that. Um, but along with that, there was uh, a lot of immigrant rights groups that came. And along with that, there was a bunch of dreamers that were there. And one dreamer approached me after the after the spring and said, hey, I'm super glad that you did this. I'm super glad that you, you know, passed the bar and now you're admitted in New Jersey because I always wanted to be a lawyer. And the fact that I know that, you know, now I can be a lawyer makes, you know, made her feel pride and, you know, gave her hope that she could pursue her dreams finally. And that affected me because, you know, I made a difference in someone else's life, which was truly humbling just to know that someone else's life trajectory pretty much changed because I was admitted. That's great. I imagine as we record this, uh, there's no resolution on the DREAM Act, let alone broader issues around immigration reform. And I expect by the time we publish this, uh, we probably will still be in the same logjam. So if a member of Congress happens to hear this, what's your message to them? Uh, my message is simple. I say it everywhere I go. Dreamers are Americans. When you you know, are debating in Congress, don't lose sight of the fact that dreamers are Americans. We're the ones that hold open the door when you're running into Wawa. We're the ones that are your doctors, your engineers, your accountants, and now in some states, your lawyers. Um, We're also the ones um, that just want a chance to pursue our dreams. We we grew up here, you know, we, we went to school with your children. We played with your children. We essentially are best friends with your children and don't want anything more than just to call America our home. Uh, which it is, and we just need the Clean Dream Act so that dreamers can finally have peace of mind and pursue their American dream. Partiv, thanks for the uh, the opportunity to talk, and uh, congratulations on getting your law license, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you to Partee Patel for taking the time to tell his story and talk about the DREAM Act. You can learn more about Partee's effort to get his law license at our website, aclupa.org slash Patel. Our next guest is Sister Janice Vanderneck of Casa San Jose in Pittsburgh. 
When the average person thinks of places with thriving immigrant communities, they might only think of Pittsburgh as a part of our nation's immigrant history, not its present moment. And while the Steel City's immigrant community remains relatively small, it is growing. In this discussion, Sister Janice talks about the support her organization provides to the local Latino community and the advocacy they are engaged in. Here at the ACLU of PA, we have a tremendous amount of respect for Sister Janice and her team, so much so that we honored her with the Marjorie Matson Award for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at our Pittsburgh chapter's annual meeting in March. This interview was recorded on March 2nd. Sister Janice, it's a really pleasure to be here with you today and to be here at Casa San Jose. For folks who are listening, let's just start with what is your project here? What is Casa San Jose? Casa San Jose started as an outreach of the Diocese of Pitts, Catholic Diocese of Pittsburgh um, in 2003. The influx of labor Latinos who had not yet acquired English as a second language started to flock to the mass that was celebrated every week in Spanish, whereas that congregation had for decades been made up of professional Latinos who came to Pittsburgh for careers in the professions, engineering, uh, teaching in the universities, medicine in our major hospitals, um, researchers, suddenly these labor class started to be joining them. They found out there was mass in Spanish and they went there. And they were, they, besides their faith life, they were seeking assistance with adapting here in Pittsburgh. And primarily their concerns were around their children and school or the wife was pregnant and they needed care, pregnancy care, and um, what were they going to do when it came to time for the child to be born. So I started there at a request from the diocese to um, do social service with this population and quickly was swamped with clients and very, very soon after that realized uh, what it means to be undocumented in this country, uh, why you are in the state called undocumented, uh, immigration status called undocumented, and how very, very much there needed to be immigration reform. So I've been um, involved with this population since that time, the Latino immigrant, low-income, monolingual Spanish-speaking population. And um, I've been uh, striving for immigration reform and civil rights for immigrants ever since that time. The grant to do the work through the diocese ran out after about five years. So I was doing other ministries with our congregation, the Sisters of St. Joseph. But the Latino folks kept calling me on my cell phone. They found out what my cell phone number is (laughs) and were passing it around. And the the needs just remained there. There have been a number of other social service outreach initiatives to the Latino people, but still that need for advocacy was not being filled for the undocumented. Mainly because there's nobody who's going to pay you to advocate for undocumented people if you're looking for um, a a government Mm -hmm. contract. So the Sisters of St. Joseph said to me, this is your passion. Clearly there's a need. 
why don't you just go and do it? Not not why don't you, but we're telling you, you go and do it because it needs to be done and you need to be doing it to fulfill your heart's desire. So that's when um, we started this effort. We opened our doors at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in August of 2013. And we're, we were in their basement until just this past November 1st. Uh, through these years, we've gained a reputation among the Latino population for trust and security. The, and we've gained um, the confidence of the foundation community so that we have been successful in getting grants. And we have a, um, we have a political environment in the county and the city that is very welcoming towards immigrants. And so there's actually a contract from the county to do social services okay. with, the, with the Latino people. So we have two social service workers and our community organizing unit, which um, is extremely important for the advocacy piece, as well as doing youth work because of this neighborhood being a larger number of Latinos than anywhere else. The local public schools, both grade school and high school, have significant numbers of um, not only Latino but immigrant population. Mm -hmm. And so we have after-school programs with those schools and a Saturday program with youth. So we're, we're very busy and we're doing very important work. When the campaign rhetoric of, of Donald Trump's campaign started, it really stirred up uh, tremendous amount of emotion on both sides of the issue so that it stirred up you know fear of the other and it was not assisted by the fact that the rhetoric claims that the people I work with are rapists and um, gang, uh, gang leaders and drug dealers that is just every time I hear it on the news it is so um, cruel and then when Donald Trump became president, one of the first things he did was embolden ICE and tell ICE, Immigrant and Customs Enforcement, you get to work and you deport these people. Mm -hmm. There was some kind of mention that it was only going to be criminals, but that has not been the case here. Mm -hmm. We have had detentions happening since, since January, since president of, of 2017, when President Trump stepped up the orders. And we have had families affected. The, many times it's the father that's taken, and he's the breadwinner. Or, you know, both parents work just to make the payments on rent and food and so on. It, it just leaves the, the families devastated mm -hmm. and spend so much money on paying an immigration lawyer if they're lucky enough to get bond, to get out, for a period of at the most six months, then then they have to raise the money for the bond. The result of all this has been that we have many children who are living with with tremendous fear and anxiety that someday they may go home and mom and dad will not be there. Or if dad has been taken, then mom will be taken. And then what? Yeah, that actually touches on something I wanted to ask you about. Um, I'm glad you brought it up. This week, uh, there was an anti-poverty group in Washington that released a report where they were 
doing um, interviews and surveys with um, kids under the age of eight who either are part of immigrant families or they perceive themselves to be part of immigrant families. And they found that um, anxiety and social withdrawal is on the rise among these kids as young as three years old and connecting it to the rhetoric. Um, and you're seeing, it sounds like you're seeing the same thing here in this community. Yes, um, this past spring, a person we had working with our youth group that meets on Saturdays actually did her study for her master's degree on the trauma that the kids are experiencing. Mm -hmm. And she she used their voices by way of the art work that they did. And it it's just so moving to see her report. I, I, I could show you some of that artwork. Um, and it's just filled with uh, fear and anxiety. As I said, here in this neighborhood, in this area of the city, there have been ICE arrests. ICE will go to the home where they know an immigrant lives. I don't know how they f know this information, but it can't be that hard to find out because um, their kids go to school here and and they work here. So um, they go to the home and they wait at dawn. They wait outside the home because our, our people know that they have a right to not open the door unless there is an arrest warrant mm -hmm. with someone's name on it that is in that house. Right. So uh, ICE waits outside and the dads are usually leaving for work at that time, dawn, and they grab them as they're coming out the door. And they uh, ask them, show me your immigration papers, and from there they get taken. Mm -hmm. And the kids are aware that these arrests are happening all around them, not to mention the families where it has actually happened. And it creates a, a climate of a great deal of anxiety. One of the most moving things was uh, when it started to happen, families coming to us and saying, as well as we would be, promoting that they be prepared and one of the things they wanted to do was make sure that somebody of course many families asked me will you take care of my children if I'm taken mm -hmm. and of course that's a legal process of who's allowed to take care of the children so we have wonderful pro bono lawyers that are working with us and they helped us come up with what is a uh, valid according to Pennsylvania law form that the parents can assign someone to have custody of their children if they are both taken. Also, they learned and we learned that not just anybody can go to the school to pick up those kids if, if the parents are taken. We actually had that happen. The kids were living with only dad. The mom is back in Guatemala and dad was taken and school was going to end in a couple of hours and we knew those kids would have no place to go. So we went to the school, but they would not let us because dad had never signed anything. Luckily, I think because we pled with immigration and said, these kids depend on this man, they let him, they let him go. So the kids were not long waiting till their dad got uh, released. Hmm. The care of the children, that's what's the heartbreaking piece. Right. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is just to talk a little bit about immigration in Pittsburgh generally. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that there was a professional class here for a while, and now there you have a labor class of immigrants. Um, I think people from the outside might not think of Pittsburgh as a today in the present day as an immigrant community. We may, we may think of it as more historical. 
Um, but you can talk a little more about that. What What is the state of um, the immigrant community in Pittsburgh? There are several refugee resettlement agencies uh, here in Pittsburgh, and so we do have a refugee population. Unfortunately, you know, those contracts also have diminished because of Trump's uh, President Trump's uh, legislation. So we do have these refugees that have been arriving, you know, within the past probably 10 to 15 years. We have a significant number of refugees from the various refugee-sending countries of the world. And then we have these Latinos that started coming probably around 2000. I think it was a result of uh, NAFTA sort of bottoming out the price of corn Anyway, the, the poverty was started to drive the people to come up over the border and bring their families with them, the Latinos. And those are who, that's the population I work with, and they are called undocumented, not because they didn't want to stand in line. <laughs> there is no line for this population. Right. There right. is no way to, to migrate legally, and there are jobs here. So. Right. The city leaders and the county leaders are very aware of how if Pittsburgh is going to grow and thrive, it's going to need to to have a, a laborer class to because the people that are my age that are, you know, uh, that were the laborer class, and that is not being filled. People are, are moving away or just not, they're just not here. So the county and the city need workers um, of all stripes and diversity is needed Uh, That can be shown by the various cities that are thriving. They have a strong immigrant uh, cohort. And small business entrepreneurs tend to be immigrants also. So um, the city and the county government are very aware of how good it would be for Pittsburgh. But it's hard to convince persons who have lived here all their lives, are very, you know, invested in their local neighborhood, don't want to see their neighborhood changing, you know. I once heard somebody describe Pittsburgh as uh, a collection of small towns that make up a big city. (laughs) That's so true. Well, this is one right here, Beachview. Uh (laughs) The one over there, Brookline, that I told you about. And the city is surrounded by districts where um, their representatives in Congress in D.C. speak a totally different tone Mm. than the representative here of the city. So... They want to, you know, round them up and ship them out. You know, they tend to support enforcement rather than immigration reform. And that's one of our challenges, I think, as uh, organizations, whether it's the ACLU or Casa San Jose or some of the groups we work with, is building that political will to resist what the Trump administration is trying to do um, and whatever comes next and whoever comes next. You know, we, we need to build our alliances with stakeholders and lawmakers to make sure that this doesn't happen again once we finally get through this. And to that point, I want to ask you about allies. Um, There are going to be people listening to this who are good-hearted people who aren't part of the immigrant community, but they want to help and support in some way. What's your advice for those kind of folks? Well, it sort of backfired on Trump <laughs> within a large portion of population around here in that when he started deporting the people, the allies started coming forward and mm. supporting us both financially as well as coming as volunteers. We have such a wonderful cadre of volunteers 
who help us regularly with the actual office work, with uh, those who can speak Spanish, with accompanying of clients to the library to get their library card, to the schools to speak to the teachers, anywhere and everywhere, healthcare to seek out healthcare and mm. obtain healthcare. We have lawyers who have helped us form a rapid response team so that as soon as someone calls and says, ICE has just taken my, my loved one, we this rapid response team goes into uh, action. Uh, we have lawyers on call, like this is your day to be on call, and uh, and a translator to help that day so that they can get the ball rolling so the individual has representation, legal mm-hmm. representation. Allies can um, ask to receive our weekly pardon me, bi-weekly newsletter called the Amigos Newsletter. We try to uh, keep folks updated on current actions. Like this week, we would have advised about the public action that we have downtown on Sunday in support of the youth who are being denied their, their DACA status, as well as Congress being inactive on replacing it with something more long-term for the dreamers. We call them dreamers, the youth who so need this help. Um, so we advise of those kinds of things and opportunities to help out in a volunteer capacity. But cannot be replaced, talking to your congressperson, mm-hmm. letting your congressperson know what your feelings are, what you want to see regarding legislation around immigrants. So the, with the conversation we've been having here, this just it's reinforces my final point and question, which is just these feel like dreadful times. They are very difficult times. What gives you hope? Oh, <laughs> like whenever these young people find their voice, we have youth organizing too, besides organizing the adults. They find their voice and they... They've gone. Our youth have gone to Harrisburg and spoken to the congresspeople in Harris or the representatives in Harrisburg. Even some of the youth who are undocumented, they've gone with us on a trip to the border in Nogales, Arizona. They will be there. Our youth will be there Sunday to demand action for for the Dreamers. So it's probably the youth that uh, most inspire me, as well as. Just when our volunteers come in here and so willingly and with a happy disposition give their time every week faithfully to us, that all inspires hope. So if folks want to learn more about Casa San Jose, where can they go? Yeah, we have a website, www.casasanjose.org. And um, we have a Facebook page. Uh, the young young members of the staff do this. I'm not good at this, the Instagram and the tweets, You're the right. twi- Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Sister Janice, we really appreciate your work. What's happening here is really important, and thanks for being an ally of the ACLU. Thank you for the opportunity, and, and I am grateful for the ACLU. A special thank you to both of our guests today, Partiv Patel and Sister Janice Vanderneck. You can learn more about Partiv's case at aclupa.org slash Patel. And you can find more information about Sister Janice and Casa San Jose at casasanjose.org. 
The ACLU of Pennsylvania and National ACLU are both active in the struggle for fair immigration policies that respect people's constitutional rights. So check out our websites, aclupa.org and aclu.org for the latest updates. If you're not already on our email list, sign up today on either website. We'll send you the latest news and actions that you can take in support of immigrants and other important civil liberties issues. Episode one is a wrap. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Technical support is provided by Ben Bowens, and our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm your host, Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.